So the Bible tells us here that God is going to bring all things into judgment, everything into judgment, even the secret things. According to the book of Psalm 90, verse 8, the Bible says, Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. God cares about what's happening in our hearts. God cares about the secret things. God cares about things that we may not be able to see ourselves. Uh, God searches the hearts. He searches our inward parts and he tells us in the judgment that he is going to judge secret things and secret things can be things that are even hidden from ourselves. All right. There we go. We got this working. Jeremiah 17 verse 9, the Bible says the heart is deceitfully wicked above all things or deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it? So not only do we have to deal with the idea that God judges the secret things, the things that may be hidden to ourselves. He then tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Now I'm setting something up here and I want you to follow this carefully. In the book of Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, Jesus here is speaking to the Pharisees and he says, O generation of vipers, how can ye being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things, and an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. For by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Jesus here is talking to the Pharisees, and he says to them, he says, you are a generation of vipers. Now, I got a question for you. What are vipers? What are vipers? Yes, that's right. Vipers are serpents. Yes, yes, yes. He's saying you are speaking like a bunch of serpents. In fact, he says, how can you being evil speak good things, right? Out of the good treasure of the heart, you're going to bring forth good things. Or out of the evil treasure of the heart, you're going to bring forth evil things. So the Bible is telling us that what comes out of our mouth is a condition of what is in our hearts. Okay? What comes out of our mouth is a condition of what is in our hearts. And then he says, by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned, which really means that it's by our hearts that we will be justified or condemned. So check this out, guys. Satan wants to get us to talk like him. Satan wants to, to teach us how to talk like him because he wants us to be judged and lost. Satan wants to teach us how to talk like vipers. Let's keep going. Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. I want you to notice this because the question I have for you is how does Satan speak? What is his language? What is his language? I want to share with you three aspects of the language of Satan, the language of the serpent, uh, so that you can understand how to identify his voice when you hear it. 
So let's begin with Genesis 3, verse 1. The Bible says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, has God said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. So what is the serpent telling Eve here? The servant is telling Eve, you're not doing anything wrong. Don't worry about it. You are not doing anything wrong. You have no reason to feel guilty as if you've done something wrong. So please listen carefully. One of the ways we can identify the voice of Satan is a failure to acknowledge guilt. All right, let's keep moving. What about another aspect of his voice? Notice with me Job chapter 1 verse 9. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for naught? Has not thou made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? Uh, thou hast blessed the work of his hands and his substance is increased in the land. But put forth thine hand now and touch all that he has and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he has is in thine power, only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. Satan is an oppressor. He is an oppressor. So when we speak about the voice of Satan, when we speak about how Satan speaks, how, what it means to speak like a viper, like a serpent, we're talking about two things, first of all. Number one, no guilt. I've done nothing wrong. A failure to acknowledge wrongs. Number two, Satan is an oppressor. He is an oppressor. So it is a language of oppression. All right, let's keep going. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 14, verse 12. The Bible says here, How art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. One of the three ways in which we can identify the voice of Satan is number one, no guilt. Number two, he is an oppressor. And number three, pride. Exaltation. Pride. Exalting oneself above others. All right, if you're with me so far, just let me hear a good amen, even though I can't hear you. Follow those three things, guys. No guilt, oppression, pride. Let's keep moving. Proverbs 16, verse 18, the Bible says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Job 41, verse 1, notice this. Job 41, verse 1. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? Job 41 is speaking about Satan, but he's personified through Leviathan, which is like a serpent. Can thou draw out Leviathan with a hook or his tongue with a cord, which thou lettest down? The very last verse, so next to the last verse in Job 41 says this about Leviathan. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. He is a king over all the children of pride. So notice that. 
Lucifer, Satan is a king over the children of pride. He is an oppressor and he fails to acknowledge guilt. That's the voice of the serpent. That's the voice of the serpent. Now that we have that understood, notice this. Proverbs 10 verse 2, the Bible says, The wicked in his pride doth persecute who? The poor. Let them be taken in the, in the devices that they have imagined. The wicked in his pride. What does pride lead us to do? Pride leads one to exalt himself or herself, but also to persecute the poor. Please keep following. I need you to watch this carefully. So what I'm about to share with you now is really very interesting because basically in the time of Jesus, Satan had basically trained the Pharisees and Sadducees to speak his language. The Pharisees spoke the language of the serpent. That's why in John chapter 8, verse 43 and verse 44, Jesus said, Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. In other words, Jesus is saying, Look, you don't understand my language because you're not of me. You are of your father the devil. You understand his language. What is his language? Pride, oppression, and lack of acknowledgement of guilt. Right? Let's keep moving. How did the Pharisees do this? How did the leaders do this? I want you to notice Desire of Ages, page 241. When Jesus referred to the blessings given to the Gentiles, the fierce national pride of his hearers were aroused and his words were drowned in a tumult of voices. All right. Did you guys catch that just now? When Jesus is speaking to his own people and he speaks about the Gentiles, she says the fierce national what? Pride of his hearers was aroused and it totally drowned out his words. The leaders of Israel were speaking with the voice of the serpent. Let's read another one. April 2, 1902, the scribes and Pharisees had separated themselves from God by their national pride. So if I'd ask you a question based upon what we just read, what separated the scribes and Pharisees from God? Your answer is going to be their national pride. Remember, guys, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Pride is the language of the devil. Christ would receive the service of learned men and of the great men if they would join themselves to him. But Christ could not join himself to them for they were not right. They were filled with self-sufficiency and self-esteem, seeking constantly for the supremacy, spurning everything that did not bear the appearance of worldly wisdom and national pride and religious exclusiveness. Once again, I want you to focus on pride. It is the language of Satan. All right. It is the language of Satan. Not only did they speak pride, but notice what else they did. In Acts chapter 8, verse 1, the Bible says, And Saul, this is before his conversion, was consenting unto his death. 
And at that time, there was a great persecution about Stephen being stoned. And after Saul consents unto the stoning of Stephen, the Bible says at that time there was a great persecution against the church which was at Jerusalem. Who was doing the persecuting? Right? It was the leaders of Israel. They were persecuting the Christian church. So watch this. Not only did they exercise pride, but they were also oppressors. Persecuting the church. Remember, the language of the serpent, I need you to be able to identify serpent talk. The language of the serpent is pride and oppression and a failure to acknowledge guilt. Let's keep going. John 19 verse 40. Some of the Pharisees which were there with him heard these words and said unto him, Are we blind also? Jesus said unto them, If you were blind, you should have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. In other words, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, Listen, your failure to acknowledge your need, to acknowledge your guilt, leads you to be blind. Satan in heaven refused to acknowledge he had done any wrong. He refused to repent. What wrong? What sin? What guilt? So follow carefully then. Follow carefully. The voice of the serpent is oppression, denial of guilt, and pride. Supremacy. All right. Now, we're going to shift to the book of Revelation. Chapter 13 and verse 1. The Bible says, And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. And the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. So I need you to watch this carefully, okay? Because we understand who this sea beast is. He rules for 1,260 years during the Dark Ages. And the Bible says that the dragon gave him his power. The dragon gave him his power. So if I were to ask you, was the dragon speaking through this beast? What do you think? What do you think the answer would be? Absolutely. The dragon, the serpent, was speaking through this beast. All right? Let's see, can we prove that? Well, in Revelation 13, verse 7, the Bible says, And it was given unto him, this beast, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And power was given him over all kindreds, tongues, and nations. So the Bible tells us that this beast that reigned during 1,260 years was a persecuting power. It oppressed people. Are you with me? The beast oppressed people. That's during the Dark Ages. So, we have one characteristic. It was an oppressive power. What about pride? According to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, the Bible says, Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God. So let me ask you, did this same power exalt himself? Was there a pride issue there? Very good, guys. So we're seeing that this beast that ruled during the 1,260 years oppressed 
And it also had pride, exalted itself. All right, very good. In John 16, verse 2, Jesus speaks of a prophetic time. He was speaking to his disciples, but he was ultimately speaking about things to happen way in the future, specifically during the Dark Ages. And he said, they shall put you, my enemies, shall put you out of the synagogues. Yea, the time is coming when whosoever kills you will think that he is doing God's service. Let me ask you a question. Did persecution happen during these 1260 years? Absolutely. The answer is yes. Did the church who did the persecuting, did the papacy who did the persecuting think they were doing anything wrong? Absolutely not. Did they think there was any need for repentance? Absolutely not. Are you catching the idea? Oppression, pride, and a failure to acknowledge wrongdoing. Now, I need you to get this, guys. We are very careful as Adventists. We don't want to, you know, unnecessarily offend people. And so when we speak of this beast power, it's a very touchy subject. But when we speak of this beast power, one of the things that we will typically say is, listen, it's not the people. See if you can finish what I'm about to say. It's not the people. We're talking about the what? What are we talking about? I'm waiting for your response. We're talking about the system. Is that right? We're talking about the system, right? We're talking about this first beast in Revelation chapter 13. It's the system. In other words, it was systemic oppression, systemic persecution, and systemic pride. If you're with me so far, just let me hear you say, Amen. We're following you, Pastor. We're catching this. All right. We're going to keep moving because we have a lot to cover. Now, I want you to understand this. It was a system, not the people. So the first beast had systemic persecution, systemic oppression, systemic pride. Now, something very interesting, guys. During the Dark Ages... Protestant reformers began to notice this trend of what was happening with the papacy. And basically, what they began to do was they began to look at Bible prophecy and began to see that the papacy was fulfilling Bible prophecy. They were actually living in that 1260-year period, and they saw there's no other power that can fulfill this because this is happening right now. In other words, let me say it this way. For the Protestant reformers living in the Dark Ages, it was present truth. What was it, everyone? I need you to repeat that, please. What was it? It was present truth. Why was it present truth? Why was it present truth? Because they realized that right then and there, Bible prophecy was being fulfilled. Bible prophecy was being 
fulfilled. And as a result of this present truth, the Bible tells us, as a result of this present truth, multitudes were converted to the truth. Protestants were preaching present truth. So Satan's aim was to try to get rid of the present truth. And how did he do that? Well, let's just read from Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, Volume 1, page 24. It says this. By the way, this is written by Leroy Froome. And here's what it says. But if prophecy was a forceful weapon in the hands of Protestants, it was also turned to effective account by the Catholics. Forced to the, to the defensive by the uncomplimentary prophetic symbols and epithets uh, applied by Protestant expositors to the papacy, the Jesuits produced two counter-interpretations of these self-same prophecies called futurism and preterism. These were designed to parry the force of the Protestant Reformation teachings and to shift the application of the Antichrist and similar prophecies away from the Pope and out of the Middle Ages. In other words, preterism pointing to the past, said, no, 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 no. These things were fulfilled in the past, so it could not possibly be the papacy today. Or futurism said, no, no, no. These things will be fulfilled in the future. It cannot be the papacy today. That's what futurism and preterism did. It put it either in the past or in the future. If you're with me, just let me hear you say amen. What was the goal? To try to get the prophetic finger off of the first beast as prophecy being fulfilled now. This is what historicism represents. Historicism basically teaches that prophecy unfolds throughout history. At every point of history, prophecy is being unfolded. Preterism said, no, it's in the past. Futurism said, it's in the future. And as a result of these two counter-reformation movements or counter-Protestant movements, the eye was taken off of the first beast of Bible prophecy. Now, couldn't possibly be us. All right, guys. Let's keep moving. We're now about to go to the second beast of Bible prophecy. I hope you're sitting down. Revelation 13, 11, the Bible says, And I beheld another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spake as a dragon. Pause for a second. What is a dragon here? Is there any such thing as an actual dragon? No. The dragon is used to symbolize the serpent. Remember, remember what we've been doing so far? We've been trying to identify how the serpent speaks. So here we have a second beast who is coming up out of the earth, has two horns like a lamb, but speaks like a serpent. We already identified how serpents speak. Pride, oppression, and a failure to acknowledge guilt. Are you with me so far? Let's keep reading. The Bible says, and he exercised all the power of the first beast before him. So he does the same thing the first beast before him did. What did the beast before him do? Persecuted? 
Yes. Exalted himself. Pride. Yes. Oppressed. Yes. That's what the Bible is saying this beast is responsible for doing. It says he caused the earth and all them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. Okay. So, pastor, what about this beast? Follow this, guys. Think of it as a Bible study. Not a sermon, a Bible study. Listen carefully. I want you to listen to what our pioneers said about this beast. So here's what this says. We say, we bid all reforms Godspeed. That means we're all in favor of reform. Listen. But some are laboring for reforms which they will never see accomplished. As much as anyone, from our very soul, we detest and abhor the foul blot of our country, slavery. So now we get the context, right? They're talking about slavery. Our sympathies are with those in whose heart burns the love of freedom and who would desire to see the bondman loosed from his chains. But he who expects to see the land freed entirely from this curse or even to see slavery contentedly confine itself within certain limits, we can but regard as laboring under a false hope. For the characteristic which the prophetic pencil has given to the two-horned beast as a symbol of our country, he shall speak as a dragon. Not that slavery alone constitutes a dragon voice, but we must take with it its prime mover, that infernal spirit that even now on the plains of Kansas, burning the homes of free men to the ground and driving out their inmates, robbed and insulted, and which but recently prompted a brutal assault upon a senator in the very halls of Congress. Prophecy gives us no ground to hope for reform here. The beast speaks like a dragon. People may caress him never so fondly or threaten him never so fiercely. They cannot reform his mouth. He will speak like a dragon still. The prophecy does not say that at first he spake like a dragon, but at length reformed his speech and breathed forth a just and Christ-like spirit. His future presents no redeeming feature. He will continue to bellow forth his dragon voice till he be cast into the burning flame and the remnant who he will persecute shall take their stand of victory on Mount Zion with the Lamb. That was a mouthful just now. You guys, listen to what they were saying. They were basically saying, even if slavery is abolished, the spirit of slavery is going to live on. And it will manifest itself through various types of persecution. That's what our pioneers taught. That's what our pioneers believed. All right. If you're catching this, once again, I'm just going to ask you to just give me an amen so I know you're following me. Now, that's what our pioneers believed. That's what they taught. Let's see something here. We're going to keep moving. I want you to watch this. It was to them present truth. What was it to them, everyone? 
present truth. They could go and preach to their society, to their cities. They could go and preach right then and there. Listen, guys, this beast right now is fulfilling Bible prophecy. This country right now is fulfilling Bible prophecy. Uriah Smith writes this. It's character. It has two horns like a lamb. The lamb features a fit emblem of the profession and the early acts of this government, but it speaks like a dragon, a fit emblem of the practice of this hypocritical nation. Look at the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, and then look at slavery. Look at the religious intolerance, the corruption and oppression. The corruption and what? Oppression existing through the land. Now watch this. A further development may be expected in the future. Watch this, guys. This is amazing. Because Adventists have become preterists and futurists. Let me pause for a second and let you think about that. Adventists have adopted preterism and futurism. Pastor, what are you saying? Listen carefully. Yes, Adventists, when it comes to America, yes, 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 listen, we agree. In the past, in the past, America spoke like a dragon. Yes, slavery, we all acknowledge it. Yes, America spoke in the past. And yes, in the future, it will speak like a dragon when it begins to pass oppressive laws that are geared towards God's people. But right now, we're good to go. Are y'all catching this? It is not the beast that speaks like a dragon now. What we've done is we've pushed it into the past or pushed it into the future and we've said now things are good. Now we are okay. Futurism, preterism, when it comes to this prophecy. You're saying, but Pastor Wade, I thought that it's in the future that these religious laws are passed. Watch this, guys. I need you to listen carefully. Jan Andrews wrote this. The civil power recognizes the equality of all law. Pause. I need you to, whatever you're doing right, if you're doing something else, if you're kind of multitasking, stop right now. I need you to focus on this right now. I need you to catch this. The civil power recognizes the equality of all men before the law. And the spiritual power acknowledges the right of every man to worship God according to his own convictions of what God requires. Here are the two horns like those of a lamb. So watch this, guys. The lamb has two horns. One represents civil power. The other represents church power or religious power. Church and state. So here's what many people think. Well, this beast will not speak like a dragon until it speaks against religion. But guys, this is where you have it wrong, if you believe that. Because there are two ways that the dragon speaks. One is through one horn, the other is through the other horn. One is through civil power, the other is through religious power. Now watch this. 
The lamb cannot speak like a dragon through religious power yet because of separation of church and state. Did you catch that just now? There's a separation of church and state. The lamb-like beast cannot speak like a dragon through religious power because of separation of church and state. That is yet future. But guess what? Right now, he is speaking like a dragon on the civil side. Oh, man. <laughs> right now, he is speaking like a dragon through the civil side. And he's been doing that since slavery. So what are we doing, guys? In essence, what we're doing is we're ignoring the civil dragon talk because we're saying it doesn't have anything to do with us. We will only be concerned when he starts speaking like a dragon towards us, towards religion. And we never mind that he's speaking like a dragon now on the civil side. Historicism. Not preterism, not futurism, historicism. The lamb is speaking like a dragon now. He is not doing it through religious powers, through religious authority yet. He's doing it through civil powers. Listen to this. Great Controversy, page 443. The lamb-like horns and dragon voice of the symbol point to a striking contradiction between the professions and the practice of the nation thus represented. The speaking of the nation is the acting of its legislative and judicial authorities. By such action, it will give the lie to those liberal and peaceful principles which it has put forth as a foundation of its policy. The prediction that it will speak as a dragon and exercise all the power of the first beast plainly foretells the development of the spirit of intolerance and persecution that was manifested by the nations represented by the dragon and the leopard-like beast. Watch this, guys. What we're seeing here is that the dragon speaking is really its legislative and judicial actions. If there are two horns one civil, one religious, then what we must understand is that it speaks legislatively and ju judicially through the civil branch and now, and it will do so through the religious branch in the future. So if that's true, we should be able to see legislative and judicial actions now that represent dragon-like principles, oppression, exaltation, and a failure to acknowledge guilt. Are you catching this so far? I need you to follow this, guys. Look, let's keep moving. So the question is, is the lamb speaking like a dragon right now in civil terms? Right? We're not looking at religious yet. We're just looking at civil terms, social terms. All right. I hope you're sitting down. I want you to watch this. 
Revelation 12, 17, the Bible says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. We know that Satan is going to make war with the remnant church. That's his whole goal. His whole goal is to destroy the remnant church. So the question is, how does he plan to do that? This verse is talking about what happens after the Dark Ages. Right? So this is talking about 1798 and after, beyond. How is a dragon going to make war with God's people? That's the question. Well, let's find out. I want you to notice this. We're about to look at some history, okay? We're going to see, is the lamb currently speaking now as a dragon? Ready. John Baptiste Lamarck. He's the forerunner of evolution. Lamarck is credited with helping put evolution on the map, partially by teaching that the environment played a role in shaping the species that live in it. All right. So Lamarck taught that the environment has an effect on the species that live in it. Please remember that environment was important to Lamarck. He brought this teaching up and we're just going to take note of that very briefly. It is from Lamarck that Charles Darwin got his teaching of evolution. At least the seeds of that teaching. And you know that Charles Darwin in around 1842 and 1844 wrote his initial manuscript on what is now known as on the origin of species by natural selection. Now, here's the thing, guys. We know that this is the origin of evolution. And as a church, we are anti Evolution. Amen? We war against evolution because we know that evolution was designed to counteract the Sabbath message, right? To get rid of the Sabbath message. No, God did not create the world in six days and rest on the seventh. That's just all made up. There was no six-day creation. So Satan has brought about this teaching as an effort to discredit the word of God. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is anti-evolution, and we know that it rose from Darwin, and we're like, yes, we fight on that level, on that front. No evolution, no evolution, no evolution. But, beloved, there's something that we miss. There's something that we forget, because Satan did not just use Darwin to bring about evolutionary teaching, but it was actually a two-pronged attack. And one, I would say, as Adventists, I don't know, we forgot or we just don't realize but let me share with you that the full title of Darwin's book was On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. Hmm. Wait a minute. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's the full title of the book. Not only was Darwin talking about evolution, but he was also talking about a hierarchy of races. Yeah, 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 guys. I need you to follow this. So not only did evolution basically get its platform through Darwin's book, but there also began to grow this idea of a hierarchy among races. Yes, yes, yes. Come on. Let's keep moving. Darwin would write later in another book, The Descent of Man, the Western nations of Europe now so immeasurably surpass 
their former savage progenitors, that they stand at the summit of civilization. The civilized races of man will almost certainly exterminate and replace the savage races through the world. Whoa, 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 wait, what a teaching. Certain races are going to be extinct or just wiped out and the higher races, the civilized races, will go on, will last. Very interesting. Let me ask you, do you see any pride in a sentiment like that? That there are some races that are better than other races. What do you think? You think that's a prideful statement or a prideful thought? All right. Well, I'm not even talking about Darwin, really. We're just kind of going somewhere with this. I need you to catch this, guys. Darwin feared that in developed nations, the reckless, degraded, and often vicious members of society tended to increase at a quicker rate than the provident and generally virtuous members. By the way, this is dragon speak. This is dragon speak. This is one race claiming superiority above another race. Saying, yeah, we're civilized, they're not civilized. And by the way, they tend to increase at a quicker rate and that could be a problem. And why is this important to understand? Because in around 1883, another man by the name of Francis Galton, who happened to be Darwin's half-cousin, introduces a new teaching called eugenics. Now, I just need to ask you guys if you've ever heard of eugenics before. If you know what eugenics is. Because we're going to break this down. And I want you to see, beloved, where this is going. So Francis Galton, let, let's see what eugenics is. Eugenics is the practice or advocacy of improving the human species by selectively mating people with specific desirable hereditary traits. It aims to reduce human suffering by breeding out disease, disabilities, and so-called undesirable characteristics from the human population. Early supporters of eugenics believe people inherited mental illness, criminal tendencies, and even poverty and that these conditions could be bred out of the gene pool. So check this out, guys. Check this out. Francis Galton, Darwin's half-cousin, takes Darwin's teachings and begins to apply it to intelligence, to characteristics of human beings. And Galton teaches that criminality is actually inherited. Yeah, I don't know if you guys can see where this is going. In other words, this is also known as scientific racism. Scientific racism, sometimes termed biological racism, is a pseudoscientific belief that empirical evidence exists to support or justify racism, racial discrimination, racial inferiority, or racial superiority. In other words, eugenics taught that certain races were naturally inferior and others naturally inferior. It was just nature. Specifically, it had nothing to do with environment. 
Yeah, yeah, I'm going somewhere with this. We're talking about dragon talk, guys. We're talking about learning how to identify the voice of the dragon so you can hear and recognize dragon talk when you hear it. Remember, dragon talk is oppression, pride, and a lack of acknowledging guilt or wrongdoing. So let's talk about the core principles of eugenics. Eugenic sterilization, a reorientation of the problem published in 1936. So this is published in 1936 by the Committee for the Investigation of Eugenical Sterilization of the American Neurological Association. Listen to the four core principles of eugenics and I hope you are sitting down. Number one was the belief that a number of social and behavioral problems such as insanity, feeble-mindedness, epilepsy, pauperism, that means poverty, alcoholism, and certain forms of criminality are on the increase. Number two, people bearing these various defective traits propagate at a greater rate than normal population. In other words, criminals have a tendency to populate more. I hope you're listening. This is what eugenics taught. Thus, the number of defective or degenerate people in society is increasing at a faster rate than ordinary non-pathological stocks. So there was this concern in the 1920s and the 1930s about this overpopulation of lower forms of life, if you will. Lower forms of humanity, feeble-mindedness, epilepsy, and it was all genetic. In other words, it was scientific. Let's keep going. Number three, such defects in mental function and behavior are fundamentally and mainly hereditary. So that it was common to speak of insanity, feeble-mindedness, epilepsy, pauperism, and criminality as if they were unitary traits and at the same time were linked together as a psychopathic set of trends. Again, this is normal. It is natural. And number four, eugenicists argued that the environment in which a person was raised was of much less importance. than the germ plasm inherited from their parents. In other words, biological inheritance is the cause of adverse social status criminality or general social maladjustment. A colliery of the latter two points is that such behavior, including feeble-mindedness, were so strongly determined by biological factors that they were virtually unchangeable, significantly improving the cognitive abilities of the feeble-mindedness or making the criminal into a model citizen was deemed virtually impossible. Biology was destiny. You guys, I need you to follow this carefully. This is Dragon Talk. Dragon Talk said, listen, it's not about environment. These people are so messed up, they are born criminals. They are born lazy. It's inherited. It's cultural. It's who they are 
as a people. This is what eugenics taught. This is the 1920s and 30s. This was dragon talk. They basically took racism and made it scientific. So now, listen carefully, dragon talk was no longer slavery through laws as it was in the 1600s, 1700s, 1800s. Now, it was no longer through slavery, but through science, eugenics. It was dragon coal talk. Dragon whistles. Racism didn't disappear. Slavery didn't disappear. It just transformed itself into a new version. It was now scientific. Come on, let's keep going. So watch this, guys. Listen carefully. They were so concerned about the diseased population uh, mingling with the pure population that they had to create a gap. They said, listen, in order to, to save the human race, this is in newspapers all over in the 1920s and 30s, in order to save the human race, we've got to create a separation, a gap. Let's call it a eugenic gap. That's what we're going to call it. We're going to call it a eugenic gap. So number one, the problem was internal. Let me say it this way. The problem was systemic, meaning it was systemic through a certain race of people. They are systemically stupid. They are systemically lazy. They are systemically criminals. So it was systemic in that sense. It's just in their blood. It's just in their DNA. So in order, if the race is going to survive, we've got to control external factors to make a large enough gap between the fit and the unfit so that the fit races will survive. I hope you're following this. So let's read what eugenicists thought was a solution. So here's what they said. The first step on the eugenic continuum, in other words, to solve this problem, this crisis, was differentiation. It was the simplest. It just requires convincing a person or group that he or she or the group differs from another person or group in some meaningful way. American eugenics, eugenic proponents grasp that education was critical to helping the American public distinguish the fit from the unfit. For its part, the ERO offered courses to train social workers and concerned Americans on how to develop family pedigrees. In the furtherance of the ERO's mission to collect data on American families and to justify concerns about the hereditary defective traits. Let's keep reading. Eugenicists created fitter families contests at state fairs to encourage fit families to submit eugenic pedigrees and medical information in exchange for a chance to win a trophy. The American Eugenic Society sponsored the Better Baby contest that had become popular in the early 20th century because of support for women's rights campaigners. You're probably like, Pastor, what does it have to do with our church? Hold on. I'm getting there. Watch. Follow me. Step two was alienation. In their rhetoric, eugenicists argued that not only were certain groups different, but also their differences were in some way incompatible with the dominant social order. Eugenicists believed that it was not simply that the group was different, it was that their difference was a problem. Sometimes the problem was, was presented as a financial one. For example, the sesquicentral 
exposition in Philadelphia, the American Eugenic Society exhibit included a board that revealed with flashing lights that every 15 seconds, $100 of Americans' money went for the care of persons with bad heredity. In the early 20th century, the ABA approved a proposal to promote the segregation or long-term incarceration of the people it considered unfit during their fertile years. So in other words, part of the eugenics plan was imprisonment of the unfit society. Incarceration. Dragon talk. We're going to keep going. Another was segregation. There was another avenue of segregation as well, which involved preventing what was considered the wrong types of people from entering the country in the first place. Proponents of eugenics advocated limiting immigration to the United States based on race and ethnicity. Charles Davenport, remember that name, Charles Davenport, ERO founder, gave voice to the concerns of many when he suggested that we build a wall. high enough around this country so as to keep out these cheaper races. Lest the country be surrendered to the blacks, browns, and yellows. This is dragon talk, guys. We're talking about 1920s, 1930s. This is dragon talk. This is oppression. This is exaltation above another group of people. And this is nothing wrong. What we're doing is a noble thing. In the United States, eugenicists were influential in passing the Immigration Restriction Act of 1924 to halt the influx of Southern European immigrants who eugenicists viewed as immigrants of the lower grade of intelligence and immigrants who are making excessive contribution to our feeble-mindedness, insane, criminal, and other socially inadequate classes. Dragon speak, guys. Can you identify dragon speak? When you hear dragon speak, can you identify it? Do you speak dragon speak? I want you to be able to identify it. I don't want you to speak it. Because the devil is just trying to get you to speak dragon speak, knowing that by your word you will be justified and by your word you will be condemned. So if he can teach you how to speak dragon speak, if he can teach you how to talk like the dragon or accept dragon talk as something noble and good and pure, it's a setup, guys. It's a setup. Come on, let's keep going. In the early 1920s, a eugenic movement, belief in natural biological differences between race groups, was on the rise. The dominant view of American race science was one of extinction. The idea that through complete racial segregation, the lesser races would simply die off. Create a gap. A eugenics gap. Create a gap. And leave the race to die on its own. Support the race. You're just interfering with the process of evolution. Separation was not only the law, it was considered by many whites to be the moral and just thing to do about race relations. 
putting it simply, the American ghetto exists almost entirely as a result of intentional state action. Laws, legislative and judicial branches speaking like a dragon. Now, many of us don't care because it's in the civil realm. Hold on, guys. See, if you don't care, if you ignore the voice of the dragon as it's speaking in the civil realm, what's going to happen when it starts speaking in the religious realm? I'm going to come to that. I just need you to follow along and really catch what I'm saying, catch where I'm going with this. We're going to keep moving. There was something else that eugenicists thought was important, economics. Frank Tausig, who was otherwise a good economist, asked in his best-selling textbook, Principles of Economics, how to deal with the unemployable. He said they should simply be stamped out. We have not reached the stage where we can proceed to chloroform them once and for all, but at least they can be segregated, shut up in refuge and asylums, and prevented from propagating their kind. You guys, this is real stuff. This is real stuff. Let's keep moving. Sterilization. Between 1929 and 1974, according to the Associated Press, 76,000 North Carolinians were sterilized in a state-sponsored eugenics program. The victims of this government action were considered feeble-minded and deemed undesirable, at least in terms of potential reproduction. The forcible sterilization of the program were typically poor and primarily black. Let me ask you a question, guys. Was the lamb speaking like a dragon? Absolutely. Absolutely. This is not a question. It has been speaking like a dragon. How about education? Lewis Terman wrote in The Measurement of Intelligence in 1916, black and other ethnic minority children are ineducable beyond the nearest rudiments of training. No amount of school instruction will ever make them intelligent voters or capable citizens in the sense of the world. Their dullness seems to be racial or at least inherent in the family stock from which they come. In other words, they're just lazy. It's their culture. It's just who they are. It's not environment, guys. Don't think if we make our schools better, they're going to do any better. It's the fact that they are just lazy. Children of this group should be segregated in special classes and be given instruction which is concrete and practical. They cannot master abstractions, but they can be made efficient workers. In other words, give them lower paying jobs. Don't train them to go to the best schools. That just doesn't make any sense. Don't put money into building schools for them, good schools. That doesn't make any sense. They're, they just can't do it. They can jump high. How about this? The origin of the IQ test. The U.S. Army Alpha and Beta test, this was a test given to the U.S. Army in the 1920s, I believe it was. Results garnered widespread publicity and were analyzed by Carl Brigham. By the way, the IQ test was basically used as a tool to attempt to prove eugenics, that white people were smarter than black people. That was the purpose of the IQ test. Did you know that? Now you do. Listen to what this says. Carl Brigham, a Princeton University psychologist and early founder of Psychometrics, in a 1922 book, A Study of American Intelligence, Brigham applied meticulous statistical analysis to demonstrate that American intelligence was declining, claiming that 
increased immigration and racial integration were to blame. To address the issue, he called for social policies, legislative, judicial, social policies to restrict immigration and prohibit racial mixing. I hope you're catching this, guys. This is Dragon Speak. Employment. To encounter the trends unleashed by capitalism, states and the national government began to implement policies designed to support superior races and classes and discourage procreation of the inferior ones. As explained by Edwin Black's 2003 book, War Against the Weak, Eugenics and the American Campaign to Create a Master Race, the goal as regards women and children was exclusionist, but as regarding non-whites, it was essentially exterminationist. The chosen means were not firing squads and gas chambers, but the more peaceful and subtle methods of sterilization, exclusion from jobs, and coercive segregation. Create gaps. Create housing gaps. And wealth gaps. And educational gaps. Create these gaps because it doesn't make sense to support a race that's going to die off anyway or that is inherently lazy. This was argued before Congress, listen, implicit in fears of race suicide, that's what they called it, the quest and the quest for racial purity was the notion that a person's blood belonged to that person's racial community. As Laughlin explained to members of Congress, the character of a nation is determined primarily by its racial qualities. That is, by the hereditary physical, mental, and moral or temperamental traits of its people. To those who believe as Laughlin did, the fate of a nation was therefore directly related to and dependent on control of its bloodline. In the passing of the great race, Madison Grant put this bluntly, mistaken regard for what are believed to be divine laws and a sentimental belief in the sanctity of human life tend to prevent both the elimination of defective infants and the sterilization of such adults as are themselves of no value to the community. The laws of nature will require the obliteration of the unfit and human life is valuable only when it is of use to the community or race. Are you guys catching this? Let me talk to you just for a second about cultural superiority. And listen, you're about to see something that's about to blow your mind. You're going to be shocked and it's not going to be pretty. Let me, let me come to that, but listen to this. Sambo was portrayed, now these are caricatures of black people back in the 20s and late 1800s. Sambo was portrayed as a loyal and contented servant. Indeed, Sambo was offered as a defense for slavery and segregation. How bad could these institutions have been, asked the racialists, if blacks were contented, were contented, even happy being servants? The coon, although he often worked as a servant, was not happy with his status. He was simply too lazy or too cynical to attempt to change his lowly position. Also by the 1900s, Sambo was identified with older, docile blacks who accepted Jim Crow laws and etiquette, whereas coons were increasingly identified with young, urban blacks who disrespected whites. Stated differently, the coon was a Sambo gone bad. Lazy, irresponsible, just pretty much no good, and you're born that way.
Listen to what Galton said. Francis Galton, the founder of eugenics. Here's what he said. Speaking of eugenics, he said, it must be introduced into the national conscience like a new religion. What nature does blindly, slowly, and ruthlessly, man may do providently, quickly, and kindly. As it lies within his power, so it becomes his duty to work in that direction, just as it is his duty to be charitable to those in misfortune. I see no possibility in eugenics becoming a religious dogma among mankind, but its details must first be worked out sedulously in the study. The first and main point is to secure the general intellectual acceptance of eugenics as a hopeful and most important study. Then let its principle work into the heart of the nation, which will gradually give practical effects to them in ways we may not wholly foresee. Do you see what Galton is saying here? Let eugenics be worked into the heart of the nation. Remember that, remember that text, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does what? It speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Beloved, we are hearing the voice of the dragon. Eugenics was widely accepted in the United States academic community. By 1928, there were 376 separate university courses in some of the United States leading schools, enrolling more than 20,000 students, which included eugenics in the curriculum. And in 1914, there was a race betterment conference. Listen carefully. There was a race betterment conference in 1914. It was the first eugenics conference in America. And through that conference, the seeds of eugenics were sown wide and far. Now, you need to be sitting down. You need to be sitting down for what I'm about to share with you right now. I hope you are seated. Here's a question, guys. Does this gap that was created through dragon talk, dragon speak, this eugenics gap. Does it still exist? Are there still disparities between blacks and whites in prison, in the education system, in employment, in housing? Is the gap still there? If it is still there, the dragon is still speaking. And if the dragon is still speaking, that makes our prophecy regarding Revelation 13, 11, present truth. Not past truth, not future truth, present truth. And there is nothing like present truth that calls people to follow the truth. When people can look around and see prophecy being fulfilled before their eyes, when they can look around and see, yes, the dragon is speaking, and that's in the Bible? Do you catch what I'm saying? So what does this have to do with the church? Let me tell you. Let's talk about Germany real quick. I'm just going to read to you. Germany, in the time of Hitler, listen to this. Furthering its compromise, the Adventist church. All right, guys. The what church? You heard that right. The Adventist church also agreed with forced sterilization policy, also known as the eugenics laws. 
At first, the opposition to such policies was open and general among the church members and leadership as it was viewed to be a violation of Christian principle. However, in response to the resistance, the government responded with an educational campaign that used Adventist journals to defend the new eugenics law. Again, hermeneutical acrobats were used to defend the government's position that was based on principles that were completely antagonistic to Adventist beliefs. The far-fetched explanation suggested that the notion that Christians should not be interfering with nature's process of cleansing the nation's racial pool. These are Seventh-day Adventists in Germany during the time of Hitler. I know what you're saying. Oh man, that's messed up. That was Germany though. Here, let's keep reading. As the eugenic policies became law, the opposition to such concepts and legislation was silenced from Adventist publication. Sterilization was only a first step in this racial attack. The next step involved the elimination of those who were deemed to be hazardous elements to the German gene pool. Those who opposed euthanasia were Catholics and Lutherans, while Adventists remained silent. Come on, guys. Are you serious? Adventists. Present truth Adventists. Adventists who have the spirit of prophecy. Adventists who know the Bible. Adventists who understand the Sabbath. Adventists who understand keeping the commandments. How is it that they got to the place where they supported such things? What about Adventism in America? What about Adventism in America? Surely, we knew better. So here is one of our articles, The Youth Instructor. And I want you to notice under Are You Mentally Efficient? This is an Adventist article. Listen to what it says. The National Conference on Race Betterment met at Battle Creek, Michigan. Battle Creek, Michigan? Whoa, that sounds familiar. They met at Battle Creek, Michigan early this year and among many other things, discussed tests for mental efficiency. Some of these tests can be tried by anyone on himself, but they are rather calculated to humble the proud. If those who think themselves very efficient will attempt the two following tests, they may have some doubts of themselves as 100% adults before they get through and may even find that it goes on. Here, race betterment, which was synonymous with, with another term for eugenics. That's what they called it. Here it is being discussed in our articles, in Adventism, in America. Wait, let's keep going. I'm just going to scan. I'm not even going to read these. I just want, these are all Adventist articles, 1920s, 30s, 40s. There you see eugenics, 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 eugenics. Eugenics, eugenics, eugenics. Our church. How widespread? Don't know. But beloved, our church became infected with that theology. Pastor, why do we have separate conferences? 
I like this. There's an article here that says white people can jump, black people can read. I love this article. I want to show you how deep this has gotten into our thinking. How many of you believe white men can't jump? Stereotype, right? This article is called White Men Can Jump, Black People Can Lead. I'm going to read a few excerpts very quickly. In 1987, then Los Angeles Dodgers executive Al Campanis appeared on national television and said, uh, Black people are outstanding athletes, very God-gifted and wonderful people. They are gifted with great musculature and various other things. They are fleet of foot. As far as having the background to be a club president or president of a bank, I don't know. In 1988, then sportscaster Jimmy the Greek Snyder appeared on national television and said, the black is a better athlete to begin with because he has been bred to be that way. Because of his high thighs and his big thighs that go up into his back, he can jump higher and run faster. The white man has to overcome that, but they don't try hard enough. The article goes on to say, to show how powerful racial stereotypes in society are, Klein selected four major league baseball players, two white and two black, and four professional basketball players, also split racially as a group, and asked people to rank them on four qualities, hustle, smarts, strength, and speed. Regardless of the ability of the athletes, most people assign strength and speed to the black athletes in both sports, hustle and smarts to the white athletes. This type of thinking, beloved, this eugenic type of dragon speak, it is alive and well today. And it is believed not only by many white people, but even black people, people of all races. Because Satan doesn't care how he deceives you. He just wants you to learn how to speak dragon speak. And beloved, what we're seeing is that in American society, Satan is training people to think that they are better. Slavery transformed into eugenics and eugenics became dragon whistle. How did this get into the Adventist church? That's what you're asking right now. How did this get into the Adventist church? Guys, we are, we're coming around the bend, okay? We're not wrapping this up yet. Just give me a little bit more time. I need you to follow this carefully. How did this infect our church? Well, let's begin. How many of you are familiar with something called pantheism or the alpha of apostasy? All right. Let's read about it very quickly. By the way, this pantheism teaching was introduced into our church by someone named John Harvey Kellogg. You know, Kellogg cereal. And Ellen White warned him against this teaching of pantheism. And by the grace of God, the church never accepted this teaching of pantheism, but she warned against it as the alpha of apostasy. And I need you to listen carefully. She says, the theory that God is an essence pervading all nature is received by many who profess to believe the scriptures. But however beautifully clothed this theory is, it is a most dangerous deception. If God is an essence pervading all nature, then he dwells in all men. And in order to attain holiness, man has only to develop the power within him. 
These theories, pantheism, etc., follow to their logical conclusion, do away with the necessity for the atonement, and make man his own savior. Those who accept them are in great danger of being led finally to look upon the whole Bible as fiction. In other words, what she's saying is pantheism leads one to believe that God is in everything, and if God is in everything, then he's not a personal being, which means you're ultimately led to believe that God doesn't exist. You're led to a position of atheism. You're led to a position where you deny God altogether and you are now your own savior. Let's keep reading. There is in it, pantheism, the beginning of theories which carried to their logical conclusion would destroy faith in the sanctuary question and in the atonement. I do not think Dr. Kellogg saw this clearly. I do not think he realized that in laying his new foundation of faith, he was directing his steps towards infidelity. Kellogg wrote a book called Living Temples. And in this book, he basically said, look, the human body is the living temple. And he began to lean toward this idea that the temple that needed to be cleansed uh, physically was the human body. And thus, we didn't need a heavenly temple. And if the human body could be cleansed by my own works, then I could be my own savior. That's what he ends up believing. All right, keep following. Watch this. She says, I'm instructed to speak plainly. Meet it, talking about this apostasy, is the words spoken to me. Meet it firmly and without delay. But it is not to be met by our taking our workforce from the field to investigate doctrines and points of differences. I have no such investigation to make. In the book Living Temple, there is presented the alpha of deadly heresies. The omega will follow and will be received by those who do not heed the warning God has given. She goes on to say, Our physicians, upon whom important responsibilities rest, should have clear spiritual discernment. They are to stand constantly on God. Why is she talking about the physicians? We're going to come to that. Check this out, guys. In the movement of destiny, Leroy Froom writes these words. By the 1920s, Kellogg's had become a Darwinian evolutionist. No longer believing in the inspiration of parts of the Bible. And even denying the virgin birth and divinity of Christ and the need of an atonement. Now that's not the shocking part. Get ready for the shocking part. That is the length to which he went. However, his wholesome emphasis on biological living and race betterment never ceased as long as he lived. Check this out, guys. Kellogg became a eugenicist. Battle Creek Inquirer. This is written in 2019. How John Harvey Kellogg was wrong on race. Watch this. Organized by John Harvey Kellogg, Battle Creek hosted race betterment conferences that stoked xenophobia and led to laws allowing involuntary sterilization. Yes, you read that right. You remember when Battle Creek burned down and then John Harvey Kellogg rebuilt it? He rebuilt it as a race betterment center. His grabbing on to pantheism led him step by step until he actually became a eugenicist. Now, listen carefully, guys. Remember that fair that I talked about the World Fair in 1914, not 15, 1914, the race betterment fair that I said spread the seeds of eugenics across America. John Harvey Kellogg put that on. 
The Race Betterment Foundation was a eugenic and racial hygiene organization founded in 1906 at Battle Creek, Michigan by John Harvey Kellogg due to his concerns about race degeneracy. The foundation supported conferences, including three national conferences on race betterment, publications, good health, and the formation of a eugenic registry in cooperation with the eugenics record office. The foundation also sponsored the Fitter Families Campaign from 1928 to the late 1930s and funded Battle Creek College that is now Andrews University. The foundation controlled the Battle Creek Food Company, which in turn served as the major source of Kellogg's eugenic programs, conferences, and the Battle Creek College. You guys, this is our church. Oh, we don't have a race problem. What are you talking about, Pastor? Why are you talking about these things? Why are we... You guys, the seeds of eugenics were planted in our church. Watch this. Pantheism leads Kellogg to accept evolution. Darwin and Galton lead him to accept eugenics. His living temple health concept was applied to white temples only. White temples are important to cleanse and purify. It became white temples are the temples of God. His race betterment gives eugenics a major boost in 1914-1915. Americans infected with this uh, new scientific dragon talk, it in turn infects Adventists, who as a result adopt preterist and futurist views about America because or allowing the rise of national pride. So hey, listen, praise God for the religious freedoms we have in America right now. But guess what? A lot of people can't say praise God. A lot of people are getting killed. A lot of people have been oppressed for a long time. And when you think, well, slavery is done with, so the dragon's not talking anymore. Why are you defending the dragon? Why are you trying to cover up for the dragon? He is speaking. So Adventists are infected, and then we wonder, why is there segregation in the church? And now we have in the church, we're struggling with this issue of national pride. One aspect of the dragon voice. Denial of guilt regarding the lamb-like beast. What guilt? No, we're good to go. Everything is fine. And a nonchalance of the oppressive measures being exercised by this beast. And we're saying it's not the environment, it's culture. That's dragon talk, guys. That's dragon talk. And the devil wants you to talk dragon talk because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh, and by your words you are justified, or by your words you're condemned. Understand, he's just trying to get you lost. And in defending the dragon, you start adopting dragon-like language. Watch this, guys. You need to catch this. When our nation in its legislative council shall enact laws to bind the conscience of men in regard to the religious privileges, enforcing Sunday observance, and bringing oppressive power to bear against those who keep the seventh-day Sabbath, the law of God will to all intents and purposes be made void in our land, and national apostasy will be followed by national ruin. Did you catch that? There is coming a time 
when the judicial and legislative branches that are now oppressive, that are now oppressive to civil in civil in the civil realm will turn to the religious realm. And when that happens, you need to catch this. The same way that the oppressed race is being treated now, that same thing is going to happen to Seventh-day Adventists. Yeah. Let me say that again. The same oppression that the oppressed race that African Americans in this country have gone through for years, that same expression will soon be turned in a religious sense to Seventh-day Adventists. So watch this. If you didn't care, if you did not care when it was happening, in a sense that, oh, it doesn't relate to me because that's not my bit. If you didn't care then, if you didn't speak up against the dragon voice then, what makes you think you're going to speak up or have any effect when the dragon turns his wrath on you? When the religious horn, when the dragon begins to speak through religious persecution, guess what? We're going to experience economic hardship. We're going to experience prison. We're going to experience no protection by the laws of the land. We're going to experience no access. Then, when you care, then God's going to be like, really? You didn't care when it was happening to others, but now it's happening to you, and now you care? Now you want people to come and defend you? Now you want people to rise up and say, hey, those Adventists shouldn't be being treated like this now? But when it was happening to someone other than you, when it was happening outside of your interest, you didn't care. Really. This is a quote. In the 400 year plight of the African American, we are looking at our prophetic future in the time of trouble. That's from Ivor Myers. Yeah, I just quoted myself. You can take that quote and use it. In the 400-year plight of the African-American, we are looking at our prophetic future in the time of trouble. Let that sink in. You, my brother, my sister, I love you. You who do not care right now, you who are like, yeah, 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 but you who are like, well, they're lazy. You who are like, I, you know, that's, we shouldn't be focused on that. You who are like, that's not our problem. You, you, I'm speaking to you right now. I love you. You know I love you. I might know you. You might know me. You might be mad in your heart right now. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to us as a church. If you don't care about what they're going through, when we go through that, we're going to go through the same thing. Look, listen, in the words of Ellen White, the words of Paul will literally be fulfilled. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. As the defenders of truth refuse to honor the Sunday Sabbath, some of them will be thrust into prison. Hmm. Did you care about others who were being thrust into prison? Many times unjustly? You know what they're going to say? Yeah, they deserve to be in prison. They weren't keeping the law. Obey the law and everything will be good. 
The same thing you're saying now to others who are less fortunate will be said against you. Some of them will be thrust in prison. Some will be exiled. No access. You can't get a job. You can't work. You can't buy or sell. No access. The same thing others are experiencing now, we will experience in that time. Some will be treated as slaves. <laughs> Do you catch this, guys? If you don't care when it's happening to someone outside of your circle or outside of your color, what right have you to call on God when it's time for you to be in that position and you need help and you wish someone would come by and help and speak up on your behalf? What right? In the story of Esther, Esther 14, you know the story. The Bible says, Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not within thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if you altogether hold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Mordecai was telling Esther, listen, don't be silent when your people need you. Because if you are, guess what? God's going to deliver the people one way or another, but you and your house will be destroyed. How many of us are being silent when God's people, when the oppressed need us? Well, I'm not saying anything. That's not my business. Pastor, why are you speaking about this? Why are we always talking about this? You want to know why? Because Satan is a mastermind. If he can infect people in the church with this spirit of eugenics, with the dragon talk, which I'm hearing a lot of dragon talk today, guys. A lot of... Listen, you might have thought I was reading out of today's paper some of the stuff I was saying. No, this is all 1920s and 1930s. And it was dragon talk. It was dragon speak. And they didn't consider themselves racist. They were simply trying to preserve the best of the human race. It was a moral thing to do. I asked the meaning of the shaking. Listen to what Ellen White says. I asked the meaning of the shaking I had seen and was shown that it would be caused by the straight testimony called forth by the counsel of the true witness to the Laodiceans. This will have its effect upon the heart of the receiver and would lead him to exalt the standard and pour forth the straight truth. Some will not bear the straight testimony. They will rise up against it and this is what will cause a shaking among God's people. You know what I used to think? I used to think the straight testimony would be like the preaching of, you know, you got to, like, you know, stand firm with our doctrines. I want you to think about that. How many people you know, how many Adventists you know are going to rise up against the preaching of, you know, adherence to our doctrines? I don't know of many. I think as a church, we're all pretty much agreed on doctrines. I don't hear anyone arguing that now nah, we need to keep Sunday or now, nah, you know, the dead do go to heaven. I don't hear that. But guess what? When you start talking about helping the poor, like the actual preaching of the gospel, like actually relieve, helping the oppressed, people start rising up, man. 
Like, what are you doing? Help the oppressed? What oppressed? Let them help themselves. People start getting mad and angry and writing letters and all kinds of stuff. In other words, is the straight testimony keep my doctrines or is the straight testimony act like me? Is the straight testimony live as how I live? Do what I do. That's why most of us think the straight testimony isn't directed to us. Why? Because we're all keeping the Sabbath. And we're all, for the most part, vegetarian. And yeah, you know, we do all the stuff that is already done. We got it. No, not true, guys. It's not about, yeah, we got doctrine down. That's why we think we're rich and increased with goods and need of nothing. God is trying to show us our hearts. I saw the testimony of the true witness has not been half-heated. The solemn testimony upon which the destiny of the church hangs has been lightly regarded. This testimony must work deep repentance. All who receive it will obey it and be purified. Listen, guys, we need to realize we got some messed up stuff in our past. We are still the apple of God's eye. Amen. We are still God's. We are still the remnant. But whoa. I didn't know that racism ran so deep. I didn't know it was in our articles. I didn't know it was in our periodicals. I didn't know that Adventists were actually believing this stuff. And if their parents believe this stuff, what about those who are living right now? Might they be infected with this same thinking? Revelation 3.17, because you say I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Watch this. Because you say I am rich. Pride. I am better than others. I don't care about the oppressed. Why should I care about the oppressed? I am up. I am. This is I am God's chosen and we're to preach three angels message, not care about the oppressed. I am rich with doctrine and knowledge because you say you are rich pride exaltation and increase with goods. You don't acknowledge that you've done anything wrong. That's dragon talk. And God is rebuking his church for entertaining dragon talk. This being rich is spoken of in a condemnatory way. And there's one guy I think of. Remember the rich young ruler? Remember what happened to him? He was rich and increased with goods. And he said, I've kept the commandments. I did that all. What am I lacking yet? I'm a good Adventist. Jesus says, sell your riches and go help the poor. Go help the oppressed. And he was like, yeah, mm-mm. No. You see, this is what makes God sick. This is what makes him want to spew the lukewarm out of his mouth because you claim to believe truth. We claim to believe truth and yet we carry around these internal things in our heart. We may not even recognize it's there. And when he says, look, let me preach to you. Let me share with you the word and show you your heart. Instead of going, whoa, I didn't know that was there. We're like, man, whatever, I'm not listening. And we close our ears. 
dragon talk got Lucifer kicked out of heaven. I will spew you out of my mouth, he says to Laodicea. I will cast you as profane out of the mountain of God, he said to Lucifer, because Lucifer did the same thing in heaven. I am lifted up above others. I will not acknowledge any guilt. And I will oppress. Or I will be nonchalant about people who are oppressed. I don't care about the oppressed. We give lip service. Yeah, I care about the oppressed, but why are you talking about it so much? Why is this all you do? Why is this all you preach about? Why is this all you're talking about? Come on, can we talk about something else? What about this? What about that? We're, we just want to direct the conversation anywhere else other than the oppressed. Why? Why? Here, closing statements, guys. Closing statements, I promise. I have two more quotes to read. This is one It's several slides. Listen carefully. While the world needs sympathy, while it needs the prayers and assistance of God's people, while it needs to see Christ in the lives of its followers, the people of God are equally in need of opportunities to draw out their sympathies, give efficiency to their prayer, and develop in them a character like that of the divine pattern. It is to provide these opportunities that God has placed among us the poor, the unfortunate, the sick, and the suffering. They are Christ's legacy to his church, and they're to be cared for as he would care for them. In this way, God takes away the dross and purifies the gold, giving us that culture of heart and character that we need. In placing among us the poor and the suffering, the Lord is testing, testing us to reveal to us what is in our hearts, beloved. If you don't care about the oppressed now, God says when it gets to the time of trouble, you've already identified you who you are. You've already identified that your heart is not with me. You didn't care about it when it was happening in a civil sense to other people, but now it's happening in the religious horn, and now you're worried. You see, beloved, the dragon, the lamb has always been speaking as a dragon. In the past, through slavery. In the present, through eugenics, through coded racism and in the future it will switch over to the religious horn but beloved if all we care about is the religious horn and we don't care about those who are suffering under the civil horn we are belying who we really are God has put us in this position to test us to see if our hearts are really right with him and many of us are failing the test many of us are blaming the poor Many of us are telling ourselves and others that the poor are the way they are because they simply just are that way. It's not about environment. You guys, dragon talk is a dangerous thing. She goes on to say, we cannot with safety swerve from principle. We cannot violate justice. We cannot neglect mercy. When we see a brother falling into decay, we are not to pass him by on the other side, but are to make decided and immediate efforts to fulfill the word of God by helping him. It should be written upon the conscience as with a pen of iron upon a rock that he who disregards mercy 
compassion and righteousness, he who neglects the poor, he who ignores the needs of suffering humanity, who is not kind or courteous, is so conducting himself that God cannot cooperate with him in the development of character. The culture of the mind and heart is more easily accomplished when we feel such tender sympathy for others that we bestow our benefits and privileges to relieve their necessities. Our Redeemer sends his messengers to bear a testimony to his people. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. But many refuse to receive him. Many refuse to receive. Did you hear that? She just quoted the Laodicean message in connection with helping the poor. And then she says, many refuse to receive him. Beloved, the straight testimony is this right here. God rebukes you for claiming to be rich and increased with goods and not caring about the oppressed. Trying to frame the oppressed as they are lazy, it's their fault, they're just not being you know, smart enough and people are dumbing them down. They're so dumb that people just lead them astray and they just do this or do that because they have no sense. We talk about the downtrodden race, we talk about African Americans sometimes as if they are animals. As if they don't know any better. You're being lied to as a people. The Holy Spirit waits to soften and subdue hearts, but they are not willing to open the door and let the Savior in for fear that he will require something of them. And so Jesus of Nazareth passes by. He longs to bestow upon them the rich blessings of his grace, but they refuse to accept him. What a terrible thing it is to exclude Christ from his own temple. What a loss to the church. Now check this out, guys. Here's what Ellen White says. She says, as the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but have not not been sanctified through obedience to the truth, abandon their position and join the ranks of the opposition by uniting with the world and partaking of its spirit. Dragon talk. They have come to view matters in nearly the same light and when the test is brought, they are prepared to choose the easy and popular side. Men of talent and pleasing address who once rejoice in the truth employ their powers to deceive and mislead souls. They become the most bitterest enemies of their former brethren. When Sabbath keepers are brought before the courts to answer for their faith, these apostates are the most efficient agents of Satan to misrepresent and accuse them and by false reports and insinuations stir up the rulers against them. Beloved, it's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. It's time to wake up. It's time to let God search your heart. You don't search it. You don't search good. You don't look good. Let God search it. God's got to search it. God's got to search it. You guys, I love you. I love you. This is not about condemning you. This is about Satan has laid a plot for this church and I'm trying to expose his plot so we can all be like, wait, what? We didn't know that we were saying this stuff. It was like, man, Lord, I repent. Come on, let's go. Let's get this work done. Let's wrap this up. So here's my last statement. Jesus here identifies himself with his suffering people. 
It was I who was hungry and thirsty. It was I who was a stranger. It was I who was naked. It was I who was sick. It was I who was in prison. And when you were enjoying the food from your bountiful spread tables, I was famished in the hob or street not far from you. You know what some of us would say to Jesus? We don't even know we're saying it to him. We're saying you are in that condition because of, you're just lazy. So I'm not helping you. Beloved, I'm not saying personal responsibility is not a thing. It is a thing. But don't get me wrong, beloved. Jesus doesn't ask questions. You're in a bad condition? Well, why? No, he gets in there. He helps. And while he's helping, yes, he's going to say, go and sin no more. Jesus is not an enabler of the poor. He helps and his goal is to help and get them to. But he doesn't just say, yeah, I'm going to look down on those. Nah, you need to do this yourself. Oh, you're lazy and you just want to hand out. Whoa, when you say that, be prepared to meet those words again. When you closed your doors against me while your well-furnished rooms were occupied, I had not where to lay my head. Your wardrobes were filled with abundant supply of changeable suits of apparel upon which means had been needlessly squandered, which you might have given to the needy. I was destitute of uncomfortable apparel. When you were enjoying health, I was sick. Misfortune cast me into prison and bound me in fetters, bowing down my spirit, and you said I belong there because I committed the crime. That's not in the quote. Misfortune cast me into prison and bound me with fetters, bowing down my spirit, depriving me of the freedom of hope while you roam free. What a oneness Jesus here expresses as existing between himself and his suffering disciples. He makes their case his own. He identifies himself as being in person the very sufferer, Mark, selfish Christian. Every neglect of the needy, the poor, the fatherless is a neglect of Jesus in person. I want to close it in an appeal, guys. It is time for us to be about our father's business. It is time for us to be about our father's business. It is time for us to allow God to search our hearts. It is time for us to realize that the way we deal with the civil horn now will determine what happens to us in the religious horn later. My appeal, soften your heart. Let God into it. Allow him to cleanse whatever is there and let us be about our Father's business. Heavenly Father, forgive us as a church for we have sinned. We have allowed principles, not into the church as a whole, but individually, Lord, we have allowed principles to enter into our hearts that are against the gospel. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us. Fill us with your goodness, Lord. Help us to be like you. Help us not to rise up against the straight testimony. Help us not to rise up against present truth. Cleanse us that we may be about your business. We pray this in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. 
This message was recorded and produced by Power of the Lamb Ministries. Our mission is to help prepare God's people for the soon coming of Jesus Christ by pointing to the supernatural power of the Lamb of God that gives us the experience of victorious Christian living. For more information on our multimedia resources or inquiries on speaking engagements, please log on to our website at www.powerofthelamb.com. That's www.powerofthelamb.com. Thank you and God bless.